You're listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are on Blockhouse. Uh, yeah, I mean, now that I've lost, uh, lost the race, uh, it's causing me a lot of problems. So, stop trying to hide it. That was not my only problem today. Uh, I really struggled in the heat again. Uh, that's how it goes, guys. I, uh, I gave my all and that's it. Sorry. I mean, I was hopeful of uh, still being, being able to try and do something, but uh, no, I've, been, uh, I've been in a lot of pain since, uh, since uh, Etna, so I've been trying to manage it as best as possible, but... Yep. Will you keep on fighting? I'll see what happens now. We've got the rest day. I'll see how I pull up from the rest, from the, yeah, from the stage today, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't know yet. I don't know. For, for the first time, I thought Yates uh, could, uh, could, could be, could win the Giro. Could win the Giro. But Oli, it's okay. You said to him that he was going to win the Giro still. The Giro is long, and I think the I think that Yates has the legs. What's your name? My name is Pasquale Fons. Where are you from? Forza Chiesi, I think Yates has the legs to win the Giro. Forza Yates. Uh, yes, Forza Yates. Forza Yates. Wow, that was. Poignant, wasn't it? That was Pasquale Fonsi, the Yates super fan that we happened upon at the finish, trying to cajole Simon Yates after what had been a terrible day. But it was all very poignant, wasn't it, Lionel? Watching a rider's dream, certainly as far as this race was concerned, fall apart due to circumstances beyond his control, it sounded like. Um, he crashed at Etna a few days ago, said that he'd been in pain for a few days now and also suffered today because it was it was a hot day and well came in quite a long way behind 11 minutes behind Giro d'Italia over for Simon Yates and well it we, might literally be over because yeah. he hinted there that he may not continue beyond the rest day tomorrow and he said in the interview you did for our Giro preview that this might be his last crack at the Giro d'Italia before looking to other objectives I mean if he does call it a day tomorrow uh, he's the ready-made leader for Team Bike Exchange for the Tour de France, you'd imagine. Well, he is, and we were talking, weren't we, the other day about the options that Bike Exchange have at the Tour de France, and they don't necessarily have a wealth, um, certainly not in terms of general classification. They've got Gronewegen, of course, and Michael Matthews, but Yates will turn 30 in August, and as you say, Lionel, he did suggest strongly that he may wish to pursue other objectives in the near future, not necessarily Grand Tours either, also shorter stage races. You know, he's Giro record 
Um, this is his fifth in a row. He's gone 21st. Of course, that was the Giro that we thought he was going to win. Um, lost a lot of time on the penultimate stage. Then eighth, then a DNF, then third place last year. Well, where are we? We are in the, I think it's called the Hotel Panoramico, which is about a kilometre from the finish, uh, which was at an, just close to another building called the Rifugio Mamarosa or Rosa. I can't remember whether it was, it was red or pink. The, certainly the building's pink. I think it's a Mamarosa. Um, anyway, Lionel, I guess it's called the Hotel Panoramico because this ski resort up here makes the very bold claim that it is the only one in Europe from which one can see the sea. No doubt you can see the sea because if I just crane my neck and look out the window, there it is. However, whether it's the only one or not, I don't know. Well, I should just say it's Blockhouse, isn't it? And as you say, the views are absolutely spectacular. It's Blockhouse light. Blockhouse zero, because we're not at Blockhouse. Blockhouse is 2,100 metres. Oh, well, so this is, this is diet Blockhouse, Exactly. Isn't it? Okay. Uh, well, stage nine, the last one before the rest day. Better get to the tail of the tapper, really, because it was a stage of two parts, wasn't it? There was the break, which was led at various points by Nans Peters of AG2R and two of Gianni Savio's drones, Natnel Tesfacion and Eduardo Sepulveda. I wonder what the formation was this morning. Should we find out? Without modulo today. No formation, Danny. Why? Because uh, today is a very hard uh, stage, and uh, so we hope in uh, Jefferson Cepeda uh, with our climbers. The Enigma, as Giovanni Elena, your director sportif, just told me. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> of course, he's an enigma. Because um, we 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 await uh, more from him, but uh, for one question, other question, other question, <laughs> he was never with the first uh, peloton. So we hope today. Uh, we hope that uh, that uh, Jefferson <laughs> will not be an enigma. And for other, they work for him and nothing more. Incrociamo le dita. We cross our fingers. Yes, yes, yes. Well, once again, Gianni Savio misleading there because it was a two up front scenario for Drone Hopper for quite a lot of the stage as they went over the climbs. And no sign of Jefferson Cepeda, who I'm afraid was a bit of an enigma again today. And I, I suppose that Gianni won't have been too thrilled. I think he was 89th on stage, just over half an hour down. So the search for the real Jefferson Cepeda continues. Well, Diego Rosa of Iolo Cometa was out in front by himself for quite a long while. And then finally, Joe Dombrowski of Astana was the lone leader. And he was caught with just under 16 kilometres to go on the lower slopes of the blockhouse climb. And then came the important business, the main course, I guess, the GC battle, which split itself down into this three versus three race at the front, didn't it? The stronger trio were Richard Carapaz, who made the first big acceleration of the favourites after his Ineos teammates, Ben Tulit, Pavel Sivakov and Richie Port had led the group, set the pace and trimmed the group down to 11 riders. 
Roman Bardet of DSM, he was the one who reacted quickest, and then Mikhail Lander was very attentive too. The next three were Jai Hindley, Joao Almeida, and Domenico Pozzavivo. They fought back up to the front, lost touch, then got back on again just in time to contest the finish. So the headlines from today are that Jai Hindley of Bora Hansgrohe won the stage. That's his second Euro stage win because he won at Lagi di Cancano in 2020. Almeida, Bardet, Carapaz and Lander have emerged as the leading contenders now. Lander should wear odd-coloured shoes more often. He had a mechanical issue with his shoe or his pedal early in the stage. This reminded me of a shoe-related story from 2019. Can you remember us reporting, I think we were the only outlet to report this, that Primoz Roglic had gone down a shoe size during the Giro. That was one of the greatest scoops ever achieved by the cycling podcast. That was a Giro won by Richard Carapaz, maybe an omen. He was shrinking, maybe. I don't know. Um, an omen, not an omen. Not a Sam omen. No, okay. Uh, well, Lander was wearing the black shoe on the right and a white shoe on the left, I think. Were they, no, were they both not white? Oh. But one had sort of black lacing or trim oh. or not well, lacing, I, I mean, doubt. My eyesight, I need to get my eyes tested, I think. Anyway, they were odd shoes. Uh, incredibly, Domenico Pozzavivo is still in the frame, age 39. Bora Hansgrohe's quartet is down to a twin engine as Leonard Kemner and Wilco Kelderman lost time. And Guillaume Martin, a coffee dish, slipped down a small snake, but it only, it only took him down two places. So I guess he took the elevator down two stories from the skyscraper. Still probably got a very good view from up there on GC. Maybe you could see the Adriatic. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. <laughs> Simon Yates, as we said, completely out of the picture after losing 11 minutes. And Juan Pedro Lopez, well, he had a touch of wheels, didn't he, when he was sitting quite comfortably towards the back of the group. And, well, if it was a touch of wheels, he certainly had his rhythm disrupted as a ripple went through the group ahead of him he lost touch but he fought like a tiger all the way to the line and hung on to the pink jersey by just 12 seconds from Almeida and Diego Rosa should be named Diego Azura today because he has taken the blue jersey as the king of the mountains leader in summary I thought it was a very exciting stage the race for the stage win itself was excellent but it's left the GC brilliantly poised because Lopez uh, leads Almeida by 12 seconds and then come Bardet, Carapaz, Hindley, Martin, Landa, Pozzavivo, all within a minute. That's eight riders within a minute after a really, really tough mountain stage. Two footnotes, Lionel. We talked earlier about, well, you mentioned their colours and Maliazura, etc. For Juan P. Lopez, it wouldn't matter if it was the Rifugio, Mama, Rosa or Rosa because... He doesn't distinguish in his pronunciation, as Spaniards don't. When it's a single S, they say S. So he calls it the Maglia Rossa. Or the Maglia Rossa, in fact. Um, Just another point on Drone Hopper and Gianni Savio. Uh, I saw Gianni at the finish and he reassured me, he assured me that Natnil Tesfazion, who had a really spectacular crash on the descent of the Paso Lanciano and ended up in a hedge, was okay and he finished the stage in 91st place just behind in fact Jefferson Cepeda Still gassing on fueling not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter never again optimize your fueling strategy with real time glucose data actionable insights and personalized analytics we're here to help you achieve your performance goals Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Supersapiens.
Thank you very much to Super Sapiens for sponsoring the cycling podcast. Today, Daniel, we have been discussing the difference between drowsiness and lethargy. I've become obsessed with energy levels over the last 10 days or so, monitoring my blood glucose levels and just absorbing how I feel uh, compared to the actual readings. I've got to say, it feels a little bit low energy here at uh, Blockhouse Light um, because it's it's quite quiet here, isn't it? The last time I was here, this was bustling. Lots of fans came in here for a drink in the bar, but it's very, very quiet today. Anyway, uh, Super Sapiens, I'm gathering all of this data over the opening couple of weeks of the Giro just to see what um, my body is doing when I'm eating and uh, resting and working. And an expert from the University of Verona will be analysing that data and giving me some pointers for when I get back on the bike after I get home from my stint at the Giro. So if you want to find out about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com and you can sign up and try out the glucose monitoring system. Il leader della classifica generale arriva dalla Spagna e difende i colori del team Trek Segafredo. Signore e signori, Juan Pedro López! Con sulle spalle la maglia rosa well, Daniel, that was the podium presentation for the pink jersey this evening here. And we weren't really expecting that. or we, It wasn't nailed on that Juan P. Lopez would keep the pink jersey by any stretch, was it? But he rode extremely well. He did ride extremely well. And his team had been telling us, assuring us over the last few days that he was going to surprise a few people. Giulio Ciccone, who was the sort of l'enfant du pays today, he was the... The local hero from Abruzzo, though we'll come to another sort of adopted local hero in a minute. Chicone thought that Juan P. Lopez would keep the pink jersey, and so he did. He was probably helped a little bit by the headwind. There was a section in particular about halfway up the final climb with about eight kilometers to go where you could really see that it was a, a big advantage to be in the wheels. And that was sort of where Juan P. Lopez got back on it was also where he had his touch of wheels and lost ground for a moment but then he got back on and and it ended up being quite a sizable group really for a, a stage like this that came in together and Jai Hindley I mean I think he started winding up his sprint about three days ago in Etna an extraordinarily long sprint especially on an uphill finish well it was and it went one way then the other then the other because for a moment it looked like Bardet might get it then it looked like Carapaz was going to get it but no Hindley held on um, really extraordinary stage finish but before that it was interesting. I mean, Carapaz's big attack that really shredded things down came 4.6 kilometres from the top. Um, surprised, perhaps, that nothing went a little bit earlier than that. Everyone was just quite happy to sit in behind the Ineos I don't train. Think anyone could do anything. I think Richie Port is. If Richie Port was riding GC in this Giro d'Italia, I think he would be one of the very best riders here. It, I think it's simply impossible to attack when he's on the front. And to be honest, the same probably goes for Sivakov as well, because he was he was very strong today and rode for a long time at the front on the final climb. Well, Sivakov did at least two kilometres on the front, didn't he? And then Port took over and did the rest up to the point that Carapaz attacked. Uh, shall we hear from Richie Port? Because uh, he spoke at the finish. Tell me about the final climb, Richie. Did, did that go to plan as far as the team was concerned in terms of where everybody was riding on the front? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, of course, you'd like to do more than uh, you did, but uh, I think we all gave our maximum there and 
you know, Richard's uh, probably right where we want him to be. You split the group down quite a lot when you were on the front there. How were you feeling? I felt terrible, to be honest. It's, uh, I think everybody's in the same boat. That was a proper hard day, and, uh, you know, I think it uh, really shows where everybody's at. Of course, you'd like to whittle it down to just a few, but, you know, we've got two more weeks to go, and, you know, Richard's in a good place. Um, I mean, hats off to uh, Lopez, who's defended the pink jersey, and, you know, Trek have done a really great job there. Daniel, shall I just run through the order in which the GC contenders got dropped or had difficulty on the climb? Mary Van Sevenant, I mean, a bit of a stretch to say a GC contender, but was wearing the white jersey as best young rider, albeit on loan from Pe- um, Juan Pedro Lopez. But he was kind of first to go, 13 and a half from the top. De Moulin and Tarame, they got dropped in tandem about a kilometre later. Then Ciccone, then Yates. And it was quite a spectacular dropping for Yates. No, it was around it? 10k to go, wasn't it? Oh, a bit more, maybe. 11 and a half, perhaps. Then Hugh Carthy was struggling inside, nine to go. And then Almeida was having a bit of difficulty, but he obviously got back on and was feeling a lot better towards the top. Around 7.5 to go, Wilco Kelderman swung out of the line quite dramatically, um, perhaps wanted to make it clear to his teammates that he was not going to be getting back in, maybe. I don't know. And then there were kind of the, the, the riders that got dropped. It was slightly less dramatic from that point on. Uh, Emmanuel Buchmann got dropped um, six and a half to go. And then Valverde, Nibali, and really we were left with this group of 11, which then split down to the three and three. I thought it was a really absorbing afternoon on that final climb because it was, as I say, it was exciting. The stage was up for grabs. The pink jersey was in the balance and the race is not done. We could have got here with somebody having taken a huge chunk of time. Nobody's done that. It's beautifully poised, especially as the climbing doesn't really resume until towards the end of next week. Yes, Lionel, we're in a beautiful part of Italy as well. And I think what also added to the spectacle from my point of view was the contrasting styles of some of those key, some of those leading protagonists on the final climb. I mean, we had Carapaz going off the front with Mikel Lander at one point with Bardet as well. And you couldn't get more contrasting styles as far as I'm concerned. Riding styles, I mean, Lander, who always looks like he's going slowly. I mean, I always refer to him looking as though he's looking like he's um, playing the harmonica. And Carapaz, who would look as though he was hurtling through the solar system if he was in a beginner's spinning class on a Peloton bike. <laughs> he looks so fast. Incredible. And then we're well, talking about contrasting styles. Domenico Pozzaviva as well, who I don't know what he looks like, like a... Someone pushing a, a slightly wonky shopping trolley while also cradling about a kilo of cooking apples in their arms and dreaming about the crumble that wow, he's going to make when imagery, he gets home. The imagery, um, yeah. But there was, there was a lot of that, wasn't there? But also, you know, a, a group of riders who was very, which was very equally, well, which was very sort of well matched in terms of, I think, where their form is at the moment. And which does leave us with that tantalizing prospect of a great final two weeks because we've got to this point in Grand Tours so many times and the first mountaintop finish or the first serious mountaintop finish we had Etna a few days ago but it has been fatal to the chances of a lot of the riders who came in with high hopes and that is not the case here. Can I just add Roman Bardet is like a dragonfly isn't he? All long you know rangy tall um, looks 
good on a bike, I think, in an unconventional really? sort of way. Oh, yeah, I like I like his style. Okay. You know, oh, all very, shoulders. Yeah, it's an acquired you know, taste, I think. Like he's strutting onto the dance floor for the, you know, the big number. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, Lionel, another thing that added, I suppose, some, I wouldn't say spice, but interest as far as the home crowds were concerned, was the fact that there were two Italians rolling back the years. Pozzo Viva, as you said, 39 Nibali 37 and well when we were driving up the climb we did remark we did observe that the crowds didn't seem to be huge it didn't feel as though the whole of Abruzzo had kind of descended on Blockhouse today and that is largely to do with the fact that Italy's interest in this Giro d'Italia, certainly as far as the general classification is concerned, is fairly meagre, isn't it? I mean, if we look at the general classification tonight, Pozzovivo certainly is in eighth place, 54 seconds behind. Meglio di quello che pensavo, però ho pagato, ora non so quanto, per diciamo sapevo che Carapaz Landa avevano Ma più che me ne aspettavo, speravo. Eh, cinque anni fa ero arrivato sesto ma staccato oggi dai Nibali is obviously a little bit further down on general classification, having had a bad day on Etna, but still only three minutes. And he was buoyant. He was bullish at the finish, talking about maybe having a chance to go for a stage win later on in the Giro. But he's not he's not out of the of the GC race either. I mean, personally, I was thinking to myself that if Yates had finished maybe three minutes down today, then he would still have been in the race as well, still in contention. Um, we saw last year that he had a great final week. But what should we make of Jai Rule, Jai Hindley, who after that fantastic Giro in 2020, which he almost won, is someone that really is right in the mix two years later, isn't he, Lionel? 20 seconds down off Juanpe Lopez. Well, I was going to ask you about the Bora Hansgrohe Quartet, which is now a tandem, isn't it? Uh, but just first, yeah, you say Nibali, 3.04 down, quite a gap between him in 13th and Tymon Allensman of uh, DSM, Bardet's teammate, of course. He's 1.27 down. So there is this group of 12 who really are the sort of A-listers on the GC. Uh, DSM have got two riders in there. And... Bahrain have got two riders in there and Bora Hansgrohe have got two riders in there and well we were talking up the possibility of Bora having all four still in contention today Kelderman lost quite a lot of time Kemner lost a f- little bit of time well uh, you know he's now 3.26 down so it does look like they've got two um, live uh, contenders for the overall but now they've got two um very, very good mountain domestiques in Kelderman and Kemner for the final week of the Giro, assuming that everybody gets there in, in decent shape. I wonder how much today, Lionel, Jai Hindley was inspired by racing on roads that he is very familiar with, because in 2014, a gentleman called Umberto Di Giuseppe, who has a junior team or an under-23 team in this region in Abruzzo, which is not, it's a bit of a cycling backwater, to be honest, Um he got a recommendation from a friend in Australia and it was Jai Hindley and Jai Hindley came over here and stayed a couple of seasons just outside Pescara, just down the road. So this is probably a climb that he's done on um, numerous occasions. In two, 2020, there was a stage in Abruzzo and he remarked on how nostalgic he 
he felt that day when he could smell the arrosticini, which are the, the lamb kebabs, which are the typical, one of the typical dishes of this region. And he's also apparently very fond of um, spaghetti alla chitarra, which is also typical of this region. Spaghetti alla chitarra, that refers to the way the spaghetti are made. It's a machine, uh, sort of, uh, kind of almost a spaghetti loom called uh, chitarra, a, a guitar effectively. But you can have it with any kind of sauce? Yes, you can. Right, okay. Uh, in summary, though, the Giro is very, very much alive. I mean, we have seen in the past situations at this stage of the race where it's down to maybe, you know, a sort of small handful. And, of course, the final week has thrown in some amazing twists. But the, the possibility now is that we could have eight, ten riders all within a minute, minute and a half of each other going into that final week. Um I mean, it's, it is set up brilliantly. There's no time trial next week to kind of, I don't want to upset the time trialists, but ruin things where, you know, one rider could put a lot of time into the others. Uh, not that there's necessarily in that group somebody who is, you know, head and shoulders above the rest in terms of time trialing. Um, and but and I mean, no big mountaintop finish either. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Okay, the Giro might settle into a, a slight lull over the next few days uh, leading up to next weekend. But we said this in our preview, didn't we? The, this first block of the Giro, almost like a stage race in its own right. And then there's this, uh, well, it's almost like the recovery zone for a few days, isn't it? Um, it will be really interesting to see when the riders uh, pick their moment to resume hostilities properly again. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Calm. Daniel, have you noticed how calm I've been? I think a few days ago I said, this is the most relaxed I've ever been on a grand tour. It's a low you, bar. You, it's <laughs> a very, very low bar. <laughs> it's a very low bar. Um, but I've been using various techniques to try and keep my kind of various anxieties at bay. Most of them imagined, some of them real. Um, one of the things I struggle with on the Grand Tours is sleeping because we have such sort of full days, don't we? Early starts, late dinners often, and then I get back to the room tired, obviously, but kind of wired. Can't really sleep. Tired but wired, brilliant. Hyper wired, tired but wired. Um, so I have been using the Calm app. Now, if you don't know what the Calm app is, basically it's a collection, a library of... Ambient sounds, music, relaxing stories told by people with beautiful, calming voices. And it's the perfect thing to nod off to, really. If you would like to try Calm to reduce your anxiety, reduce stress, help your, improve your focus, uh, improve your sleep maybe, go to calm.com slash cycle and you can get 40% off a Calm premium subscription. New content is added every week so you won't get bored of what you're listening to and over 100 million people around the world use Calm so wherever you are you can download the app. Calm is offering an exclusive offer, 40% off a premium subscription at calm.com slash cycle. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash cycle. We'll put the details in the show notes. Daniel, since we stuck behind a lawnmower, is it a lawnmower? Uh, delaying our progress. We're on our way to the start, but I'm taking you on a little secret mission beforehand. Can I, I can no idea where we're going, what we're doing. I think, I hope. No, any, any, any suspicions? 
Um, if I can find it right, oh, we've just gone past it. Um, we're going to have to turn around. Sorry, Lionel. Came up a bit quickly there. Ah, so it's a turning there, is it? Yeah. Is it? Uh, there was a gate there painted in the Italian flag colours. Did you notice that? Green, white and red? I didn't notice it, but it didn't surprise me, given what we're going to see. Oh, interesting. Okay, Lionel, here we are. Just one second. Shaking hands. What does this signify? The joining of forces? Here, here's the King of Italy. That is supposedly what Giuseppe Garibaldi said to Vittorio Emanuele, the King of Piedmont and Sardinia, in, well, it was a, it was a, a misty morning in October 1860, and this was one of the key events of the unification of Italy. So where are we? We're in a place called Teano, just a couple of kilometres from where we were staying last night. We're on the way to the start of the stage in Isernia. We're still in Campania. And, well, we've talked about the unification of Italy before, haven't we? In 1860, Giuseppe Garibaldi left from Genova. He went down to Sicily and he began the conquest of the two Sicilies, and this was a key moment in the unification of Italy. Various different factions with different interests had begun the process that led to the unification of Italy, but the real, the, the key sort of last piece in the jigsaw, one of the last pieces in the jigsaw, was Garibaldi's journey to Sicily and his conquest of Sicily and then Naples later. But Vittorio Emanuele was the king of Piedmont and Sardinia, and as I said, they were slightly at cross purposes at times but when Garibaldi had been successful they met here Vittorio Emanuele arrived here on a horse and Garibaldi effectively handed over all that he had conquered i.e. Sicily and most of the south of Italy and this was a key as I said this was a sort of pact that led a few months later to the formal unification of Italy. It was a bit like Bernardino finally conceding defeat to Greg LeMond in the 1986 Tour de France. Having attacked him on every motorway bridge for the previous three weeks, finally said, Greg, you know, I wanted the best for you all along. I knew you were going to win this Tour de France. Well, let's just uh, describe the scene. We're next to the road here, but the, the metal fence, the front of the metal fence is painted, as I said before, in the colours of the Italian flag. There are a couple of sort of almost like headstone type um, structures there. And in the middle, there's a statue uh, which says, Saluto il re d'Italy. I salute you, the king of Italy. Now, Lionel, this was apparently said, well, depending on whose account you read, this may have been said slightly ironically by Garibaldi because he didn't really, wasn't particularly fond of Vittorio Emanuele and he didn't necessarily agree with his ideas about what should happen in Italy and with Italy. And it was kind of, uh, look, I've done all of the hard work for you. You tap the ball in and, you know, and wheel away and celebrate in front of the away supporters. I mean, let's not use a football analogy it's the equivalent of doing the full lead out and then just elegantly peeling off and leaving the sprinter to raise his arms in the air let's uh, yeah Salvatore Comesso-esque and it being Italy line like I said depending on whose account you read it is a contentious story rather like tiramisu you know there are various well there are a couple of places at least that contest the the honor of having invented tiramisu and there's been various there's been various controversies about this event and where it took place there's a village just down the road which says no it was it was there not here in Teano and Lionel under my arm I've got well the the bible of the Giro d'Italia Il Garibaldi 
which is what we call the road book, what we've always called the road book at the Giro d'Italia. Can you remember why it's called the Garibaldi? Oh, you're testing me, because we made an entire episode of Kilometre Zero about this, didn't we? And it's fallen out of my brain. It is because in 1961, for the anniversary of the actual unification of Italy, there was a, an illustration of Garibaldi on the front of Garibaldi and his well, a thousand volunteers, as I mentioned earlier, that went down to Sicily from Genova, and it stuck. The name stuck, and we've used it ever since. It's a nice little touch, a nice little twist, something that differentiates the Giro from the other Grand Tours, isn't it? Well, it's a lot more poetic than the road book, isn't it? And uh, Italy does do that kind of thing very well. Well, Lionel, that was an interesting little detour, wasn't it? We started the day in, well, we were in Campania and the stage started in Molise, which is a very small Italian region. We talked about last year, there's this kind of myth, there's this running joke in Italy that Molise doesn't e exist. This is said about a few places around the world. There's one in Germany about the city of Bielefeld. The, 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 there's, there was a reward offered by the mayor of Bielefeld, I think it was a million euro to prove that Bielefeld actually existed a few years ago. Very odd, but this is very familiar to all Germans, this, oh, okay. this joke. Okay. That passes as a joke in Germany. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that because I live there. Um, Lionel, another thing I noticed on our journey today in, is that Molise and Abruzzo, so we're in three regions today, Campania, Molise and Abruzzo, their place names are fantastic. We saw some extraordinary... Place names, signs to villages. I would love to explore Fresa Gerardinaria, Civita Campo Man Marana, Acqua Viva Colle Croce, Seramoncesca, Letto Manne. No, uh, is this poetry? Yeah, is this Italian extraordinary. poetry? Extraordinary. I'm just reeling from this. I'm wondering whether Emmanuel Buchmann or Leonard Kemner would laugh at your joke about Bielefeld. I don't know. Maybe we'll ask. Maybe we'll Maybe try. We'll Maybe we'll try. Lionel, I mentioned Arosticini earlier. Those are, they're the famous lamb kebabs. There were a lot of them on sale at the top of the climb today, but also further down. We passed a lot of uh, Arosticini stands. There was, a, there was an aroma in the air, wasn't there, up near the finish there line? Was. There was a, a stall selling them. Um, I nearly caused an international incident during our Giro, if you remember, because I, I served them with a... Um, with a sort of garlicky mayonnaise. Um, you mean you upset me greatly? That's yeah, what I you upset mean. you greatly. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't. You kept mentioning it for days. Did I? Yeah. I'm surprised I'm not still mentioning. I'm surprised I'd forgotten about it. I'm surprised I've forgiven you. Do you think we'll get some arrostuccini this evening? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Because uh, I can have meat tonight. I think we'll probably get something alla chitarra. Okay. Spaghetti alla chitarra. I'll have some meat this evening because I was all veggie last night in our very very pleasant. Um, it was hacienda. it was outstanding, wasn't it, Lionel? We. Well, I had a panella, which was a typical sort of chickpea cake to start with. And then we both had the ravioli with pecorino, cream of onions and leek and crunchy leek. Very good indeed, wasn't it? We had a lovely bottle of Aglianico. We stayed in a gorgeous place called Icacciagalli, which was it's kind of a biodynamic, organic um, vineyard. As you said, the place felt like it was fresh out of the box. I mean, it was wonderfully appointed, very nice. I mean, it would be ideal for a kind of family holiday, but for the fact that there's not a great deal around there to keep you entertained. You know, I, I, where would you go for a day out or uh, what would you Just visit? Into the into the wilds. 
spinal. Wow. I just head out into the wilderness. Okay. You know, okay. Well, if the Giro hats. is ever in this region again, which I'm sure it will be, it's definitely worth uh, checking out. Well, let's get back to the race, Daniel, because this morning I went to the Ineos Grenadiers bus and spoke to Rod Ellingworth, who's calling the shots here for Ineos Grenadiers. I wanted to know how Richard Carapaz was doing because it seems like everything has gone perfectly to plan so far for him. But I also wanted to know how a team like Ineos controls in the early stages of uh, a stage like today how do they decide who's allowed up the road and who isn't how much conversation goes on between the various teams with the gc interest and what's the kind of magic formula for the breakaway rod big day today you just said the turbo trainers are lined up there are yeah. they all going to warm up or some of them going to warm up what who makes that call uh, well, we, uh, we look at it before, obviously, just look at the demands of, of, of the stage early on. And obviously, you know, it's a, a tough start, isn't it? So um, basically 37 Ks until they reach um, the, the top of, of the first couple of climbs, you know, and they're straight out the blocks on a climb. So a category three climb, isn't it? So, um, you know, it's worth just ticking over. We're, we're sort of at that stage of the race where, you know, the guys... They're, they're going to feel the starts in the legs now, so you know you're doing anything to help them just sort of get into the rhythm. So yeah, so, so they're, they're all going to. The plan is at the minute they'll all warm up. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a tough start, I think. It's all about the right break going. So who will police that? Will you take on choosing and and, and deciding which ones to chase and which ones to let go, or is, is, does it is it a kind of a a collaboration between all of the teams with a GC interest? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what others will do. Obviously, we've got our plans, and I think that, um, you know they, they're very clear on who can and who can't. Um, you know, they're very clear on the the quantitative riders in, in the group as well. So, you know, I, and I'm sure other GC teams have a similar type of approach. So, you do find there's a bit of collaboration there in terms of um, you know that early break going. So you just got to be, you know, eyes on it from the from the word go. There's no, there's there's absolutely no time to chat with the mates today. That is for sure. So what's the criteria? I'm imagining, but correct me if I'm wrong. It's a combination of who the rider is, yeah, where they are on GC. So you might not want anyone within five minutes to go up the road, but also you might keep an eye on riders from, say, I don't know, Movistar or uh, EF or yeah. Bike Exchange going up the road because they've got a GC interest back in the group I think there's also um, you know you want to make sure that not every team is present obviously uh, in the group and represented because then you know there's perhaps nobody else going to be around to help work or you know but the, yeah there's definitely the GC isn't there you know what, what's possible long term you know uh, there's some guys who maybe can give a bit of time now you know and it's not going to be a major factor come the final week but so there's, there's loads of things at play isn't there you know on, on, on what they what they're looking out for but um, a lot of it as well is about not... If you look, say, yesterday, you know, the break was fine for us yesterday. Big group. They don't really collaborate that well together when there's a big group. Um, but what the, the key fact was there, was there was some riders from the same team and they can really commit to each other. So you find that them breaks do survive because there's, like, two lotto guys. You know, maybe that wouldn't have survived in the final if they hadn't have really committed like they had. So, you know, if you get too many from one team, that's always a bit of a watch out. Were you not worried about Guillaume Martin yesterday? I mean, snuck away, gained some time, put himself back in the GC picture. I mean, I described it as a, 
he's the sort of snakes and ladders of GC riding, isn't he? He goes up one day, down the next, but yeah. you weren't nervous about letting him back in? No, no, I think that was fine. Yeah, yeah, no, no stress in that sense, yeah. And uh, what about Jonathan Castroviejo? Because he crashed a couple of days ago. Last I heard, was worried he might have hurt his hip. How has he been? He's OK. He's, you know, he's been cleared to ride. Uh, he took a heavy fall. The thing is with Castro, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's a tough guy, um, like we see a lot of these bike riders, isn't it? You know, and, and you know, he needed a day yesterday. I, I, I would say today he's going to need another day. You know, he's um, just to sort of uh, give himself time. I mean, how you can recover on a day like this, I just don't know. So these guys are pretty special, really, when you think. So, uh, you know, he's, he's then got the rest day. And then when you look at the next two or three days after that, you know, it's not too bad as well. So I think he's, in, he's OK. I mean, to be fair to him, his spirits are really high. He was smiling yesterday morning, even though he was obviously in a bit of pain. But no, uh, I mean, touch wood, all good, yeah, you know, and hopefully um, he'll come round, yeah. And Carapaz looks very calm, almost horizontal, laid back, isn't he? He is super calm. He's, um, he's not... He's not as horizontal and laid back as people think. He's very on it, actually. Yeah, really, really, uh, really into the detail of, of things. Um, yeah, really good character. Great to have on the bus, you know. He's, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's calm and he's a real, he's not a loud guy. He's quiet, you know, in his own way. But he's, he's bloody, he's good. Yeah, he's really good in, in what he does. And the way he talks to the guys is fantastic. So he's a real leader. And a prediction then, uh, do you think Lopez can keep the jersey or do you think Blockhouse is just too much? I mean, I don't know too much about his climbing. I mean, obviously decent, yeah. but... Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not, a, you know, don't know him that well. Uh, I think he'll, he could hang on, but um, I think he'll struggle today, yeah. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ineos Grenadiers had all of the turbo trainers set up for the riders to warm up before the start anticipating a lively start and a big fight for the break needed to be warmed up um, you know as soon as they got out of the neutralized zone I guess but this also did highlight some of the disparity between the, the haves and the have-nots in the peloton didn't it yes it did Lionel when we arrived at the start this morning we were about an hour before the actual start and I noticed that Gianni Savio's boys, Gianni Savio's drones were already warming up on their turbo trainers on the rollers and I asked Gianni's direct sportif Giovanni Elena why and he said there was a very simple reason it was logistically challenging today the bus had to leave early and the turbo trainers had to go in the bus because there was no other vehicle to take them to the finish and we then noticed when it did get to sort of 15 minutes 10 minutes before the actual start you could really see that division that you were talking about the haves and the have-nots in this case it was extra vehicles and turbo trainers vehicles with the capacity to take turbo trainers in them and the world tour teams were generally warming up still whereas the pro conti teams were going for bike rides to warm up effectively they were sort of circling around Isernia weren't they on well, their bikes yeah certainly Ineos and Bora Hansgrohe had vehicles that they could put all of the turbo trainers in allowing the buses to go at the time that they had to go because they had to leave in order to get the considerable distance up here to Blockhouse in time so yeah it's a little factor that people perhaps wouldn't appreciate the difference between the logistics might come down to just having an extra sprinter van 
Um, but it makes a big difference. Lionel, you talked about who would be and who wouldn't be allowed in the break today. And it's it's always the, well, it's the big teams that effectively decide that. They have got the power, haven't they? by virtue of the talent in their ranks to condemn or to elevate or facilitate a break. And the riders who did make it into the breakaway today were very much hoping that they would get a a golden ticket to go for the stage win. The way the tactics played out, that wasn't the case. But one man who was hoping that he would be on a long leash today was Joe Dombrowski of Astana. I spoke to him at the finish. Joe, we thought it was shades of Sestola out there. Is that what you were hoping? Is that what you were sensing at any point today? Mm, yes, I mean, uh, in the end, it's uh, it's always the peloton that decides, right? And um, I think it was Trek pulling behind, which I sort of felt like they were doing the work for Ineos, and then Ineos just needed to, to close, you know? Uh, because a stage like this, if the real GC contender teams only have to pull the last two climbs, it's not, it doesn't cost so much um, so I was a little bit doubtful when I saw the gap was only hanging around 5, 5.30 to be honest I think a climb like this probably needs to be closer to 10, but I felt good, I mean I more or less forced the breakaway just with legs and then there was some attacking on uh, Lanciano because uh, Rosa was is interested in the jersey, but I didn't really want to... Si- actually, similar, you referenced the stage in Sesto last year. Similar, there was two guys off the front, and I just preferred to stay behind and save some energy. But then I was able to close in the end, but, you know, if you have one minute or whatever at the bottom, then it's kind of a, a fool's errand. But, uh, yeah, no, it was okay. I mean, a, a really, really difficult stage. 5,000 metres of climbing, a really difficult last climb as well. And what were the conditions like there? Because we heard there was a bit of a headwind that may have affected things as well. Yeah, um, it was... Uh, I mean, this, this last climb is exposed, you know. It's, we're not really, like, I wouldn't say high alpine, but um, there's not a lot of trees and coverage. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what played out on the final. I... Once I got caught, I just take the radio out and go my go my own pace. But uh, I can imagine if it was headwind, you know, it's like um, it's less likely that someone wants to go all in and commit. Six or seven guys came in together. Yeah, so that makes it seem like they kind of saved their bullets a little bit. Um, the Giro's still long. We're only at the first rest day tomorrow, so and I'll be looking forward to that. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science and Sport. Science and Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science and Sport. As everybody knows, you can get 25% off all Science and Sport products at scienceinsport.com with the code SISCP25. Now, Ineos Grenadiers are officially supplied and sponsored by Science in Sport, so all their riders are using Science in Sport products before, during and after their rides. That's um, bars, gels, drinks. But not every team has a deal with Science in Sport, and we did gather a little bit of uh, scurrilous, kind of intriguing, gossipy news, didn't we, today? We won't, sh- we won't name and shame the team or the rider, uh, but there was a rider from a team that doesn't have a sponsorship deal with Science in Sport, but ha- uses another nutrition company, 
but their rider was stuffing a science in sport gel into his pocket and was being told by a member of staff to be careful not to be seen on TV consuming or discarding the wrapper. I mean, that just that says something in itself, doesn't it? Um, so maybe that rider, if you're listening, the code is SISCP25. <laughs> Bold? Very bold. Anyway, on with the on with the cycling. I just wanted to pick up on something Talking that Rod Ellingworth said. I was going to say we're, we're going to move on to illicit eating of a different by animals in a minute. <laughs> well, Rod Ellingworth uh, of Ineos Grenadiers. I asked him whether he was concerned about Guillaume Martin getting back into the GC picture yesterday. And, well, he was quite dismissive there, really, not concerned at all. Now, maybe on the long game, perhaps not such a concern over the last week, but he didn't lose the time that perhaps he might have lost today, given that he was out in the break racing aggressively all yesterday afternoon. I would say Guillaume Martin will be very, very happy with the sum total of his weekend's work because he really is nestled right back in the picture again. Sixth place overall, uh, 28 seconds off the GC bang in the picture and can ride a GC riders race from here but it's a rest day tomorrow Lionel I don't know what your plans are do they involve laundrettes I'm not sure mine no, do I went for the early laundrette strategy so I'm all, all good now all the way through to Turin my uh, well we've got to record the press conference episode do send in your questions uh, email them to contact at thecyclingpodcast.com if you can record them as a voice note please do we'll prioritise the ones that we can hear but if you're not as comfortable recording your question just email us and we'll try to get through as many as we can in tomorrow's press conference episode we're also going to record an episode about a book you've written. Daniel. Yes, we are, Lionel. <laughs> that bodes well, doesn't it? It'll yes. be the shortest episode yes. we've ever done. Yes, Lionel. Um, and we are staying on... Would you believe it? Would you, you, you wouldn't catch your breath, would you, Lionel? We're staying on a vineyard tomorrow. Oh, so wonderful. there might be some tasting done tomorrow. And we've got time to do it as well. Lovely Excellent. stuff. Rest days are always... Look forward to, enjoyed, relished at the Giro d'Italia. And this brings us to this evening's instalment of Giro del Buffalo. Two years ago, two years ago, three years ago, in fact, now, Richard Moore and I were holed up in a beautiful little property overlooking one of the lesser-known Italian lakes, Lago di Zeo. And what ensued was one of the more unusual press conferences that we've ever held. Well, certainly one of the most unusual interruptions to a press conference we've ever held. Il Giro del Buffalo, remembering Richard Moore. Where are we, Daniel? Um, well, Rich, we're in a quite spectacular location. We're above, a long way above the Lago di Zeo, which is near tomorrow's start in Lovere. It's, it's stunning, isn't it? We, well, the hotel is the Hotel Panoramico, which is an appropriate name. It's been a miserable day today, raining most of the day, but it's stopped raining. The clouds are just sort of hanging there, and it's it's stunningly beautiful. Really still, isn't it? Yep, we're above the clouds, aren't we? We're above some clouds, sort of tippy-tappy little wispy bits of... Wispy bits of cloud, like Marco Pantani's hair before he shaved it off. <laughs> yeah. There's a hot tub over there. We were We were tempted to podcast in the hot tub. Weren't yeah, we? Um, we we were trying to think of us think to ourselves what would Lionel do if he were if he was here he'd be, he'd, he be in the, he'd be in the hot tub with a lovely <laughs> glass of pink prosecco. We've got K 
cat's crawling all over us here, but that's fine. I can't actually sit on my chair probably because of a cat. That's all right. That's fine. That's cats for you, isn't it? Well, this is our uh, press conference, rest day press conference. Uh, we were at, as you said, a press conference. Oh, well, there, there, there go the crisps. Enjoy them, Moggy. Uh, and we were at, uh, well, the Yumba Visma press conference was... <laughs> Can you hear that? Oi, we're recording here. Oh, Don't be crunch crisps. We'll be... We'll be Cat. reporting him to Johnny Savio tomorrow morning, <laughs> Matteo Catania. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Anyway, um, it's probably good that we don't eat those crisps anyway. Uh, we were at Yumbo Visma, uh, Daniel, and a bit of, uh, well, news to follow up on from yesterday. There was the, the well, it what are we calling it, urine gate? Well, I don't know. It wouldn't be a grand tour without a, a Dutch sort of... Um, Dutch-related, actual <laughs> break-related... Toilet-related, yeah, controversy. Actually, I was thinking about this. So there's a long history in the Giro of urine, ur- ur- urinating, uh, <laughs> having some kind of effect on the race. In 1957, very famous case involving... Um, uh Charlie Gall and... Um, Oh, Louise yeah. on Bobby. Yeah, correct. Now, we covered this in a Clumps of Zero a couple of years ago, but the story was that Louise on Bobby stopped for a pee. Charlie Gauls also stopped for a pee, thinking he was safe to do so. It was an ambush, a trap. Uh, Louise on Bobby didn't need a pee after all. And uh, as soon as Charlie Gauls stopped and began his business, Louise on Bobby took off. And I think thereafter, Charlie Gauls was known as uh, Monsieur Pee I remember that very well, Daniel, because, uh, well, I heard the episode and then an email came in from a friend of the podcast called Addy Nell, a vet who warned us not to feed crisps to cats because they're not good for cats. Um, I mean, very good advice, really. We haven't fed crisps to cats or indeed any other animal since, and we will not do so again. But just while we're remembering Richard, Uh, I just wanted to say uh, a couple of things about riders who have been very kind this week because, of course, Richard was a familiar and well-known and well-respected face around the team buses and in the mix zone and he established relationships with lots of riders and sports directors over the years and, of course, everyone has expressed their sadness and their condolences to Daniel and I. But this week, um, Hugh Carthy in the mix zone the other morning was extremely touching, very kind, patted me on the arm. Um, and today at the finish, Richie Port, I think uh, we've, I've not spoken to Richie that many times over the years, or if I have, he hasn't clocked exactly who I am. Um, but he, I noticed he was looking at my accreditation badge and uh, he sort of rolled over and said, you worked with Richard Moore, didn't you? And he expressed his condolences and I have to say it kind of took the wind out of me a little bit because he's just turned himself inside out for the best part of six hours um, but he had a, a, a kind word to say and uh, I really appreciated that a lot and Joe Dombrowski of course who made an audio diary for the cycling podcast way back 2016 I think it was um, and he was a rider who uh, Richard brought into the cycling podcast family really and so they're not the only three who've, who've said kind things but it's uh, been very much appreciated daniel lionel final thing before we close corrections corner I, in fact i shouldn't have even been doing tonight's podcast i red carded myself for saying that rossignoli won the two won the 1909 giro d'italia i knew that it was not rossignoli that it was luigi ganna 
who won the 1909 GR. I don't know why I said that. Shocking. And also, Stop Press, news just in. We mentioned Omens earlier, Sam Omen. I made a lame joke about Sam Omen. Apparently, there's been an incident today during the stage. Juan P. Lopez, Juan P. Lopez in the Malia Rosa was the recipient. No, Malia, no, he, in fact, was the assailant. He threw a bottle at Sam Omen and he has apologized for it. Extraordinary. We'll follow up on that on the rest day. Has he been penalized any time for that? I don't know. Let's wrap it up. I mean, if we put this podcast out and then it turns out that it might have been Juan Pelopez anyway, has been disqualified or isn't Jersey, <laughs> we're very sorry, everyone. Um, we need to get to our uh, rest day hacienda while this guy behind us is stapling together some kind of Giro d'Italia literature. Daniel's put his mic down. That's it. Good night, everyone. Thank Good you, evening. Daniel. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Byrne. Yeah.